Welcome to the Art Personist podcast and my guest today, this is a special because my guest today is Todd Taylor who is best known in the art world for his curatorship of Riflemaker Art Gallery. We might come back to that later in the talk. But today we're here to talk about a new venture for Todd, well a new venture for himself which is recording his first album uh, called Frisbee. We will be playing extracts from the album as we talk through it. Um, but without more ado, I'm going to ask Tot to say a little bit about the background and introduce us, uh, you know, to one of the tracks. Hello, David. Nice to be here. Nice to see you <laughs> in this lovely room here. Um, very distant and everything. So, uh, yeah, um, uh, people will probably know me if they know the Rifle Maker space uh, in Beak Street, which um, was there from... I don't know, 2003 to 2017-18, which I curated and ran and managed with Virginia Damser. We did everything together, uh, creatively and and all the gallery kind of business and uh, and managing artists as well. Um, But uh, before that, I'd spent quite a lot of time in Soho and and quite a lot of time in in New Bond Street. Um, The thing that really connects uh, me musically to, say, Sotheby's as a business or, or the art scene in general, is that when I first came to London, um, I was a drummer in uh, several bands. <laughs> uh, I, I was young, I was about 17, 18, when I started to do proper musicians' union sessions, which for people who don't know, you're contracted for three hours, and then you have to have an hour off, and then you can do another three hours, and then the union says you have to have another hour off, and you can do another three hours. So you are allowed to work nine hours a day, which is what I was doing. The studio that I was using was Chapel's Music Studio, which, uh, again, for people who don't know, before the mega conglomerate music publishers like Universal and Warner, Chapel's was the big thing. Chapel's was the old-fashioned... Uh, English publishing house that published, say, Noel Coward, for example, and all his great, great songs. And their recording studio was at 50 New Bond Street. Uh, what it meant was I'd never visited 50 New Bond Street before, but the day that I set up my drums and they told me that I'd done my three hours and I must have the union break, I said, well, where, where can I go? They said, you can walk upstairs, there's a big space upstairs, we don't know what it is. When I walked upstairs to or two flights up, I walked into Sotheby's auction house. This was literally the, the way I connected with the art business. Um, and I did quite well as a drummer down there. What the process is that they have songwriters that they've that they publish, that they've got contracts with, and they put a band in there, a group, to do what they call demos, demonstration uh, versions of the songs. You learn the songs immediately. You're expected to play the song immediately without any rehearsal or practice. And so the songwriter would come in and play me their song and I'd start to sort of go, or whatever it was, you know, I'd start to drum along. Um, and to have these breaks in there, I the, the what I used to call the kids, they were actually Sotheby staff, but they were the young attendants, you know, who were looking after each room. I'd, I'd never been into an art gallery anywhere. I didn't live near an art gallery, so there would have been no way for me to do it. I lived in the middle of nowhere in the, in the Fenlands of Norfolk on the Flatlands. Um, so there was no culture there. And um, 
they sort of started, the, the attendants sort of started to sort of take pity on me, wonder who the hell I was. I had sort of long hair and looked a bit weird, you know, for them probably, and probably fairly scruffy. Um, the, the auction house thing was like, like, it's posh now, what I call posh, but it was actually posher then, much more formal, everyone was wearing suits, had a lot of people with umbrellas and briefcases and stuff. I remember it was a real kind of like a film set to me, you know, I thought I was walking into a film set. And um, they started to smile at me and speak to me a little bit. I was the same age as they were. And they would give me the catalogue. Uh, in those days, uh, we are talking before contemporary art, you know. I mean, as we know it, um, if, I, if I, in my mind, date contemporary art, certainly in London, to where I was, to around 1986-87, I'd say, because then I was, at, after this, I was at Goldsmiths College studying music, where Damien Hurst, etc., were on the other side of the corridor. So the music school, if you know Goldsmiths, is on one side, there's a big organ chapel and um, auditorium there. You walk across the corridor, which we did to get food because the canteen was there, and you go into the art school. Wow. So again, it was another weird one because Damien Hurst and, and those people that were there at that time, the famous group, were sometimes selling their paintings or little bits of drawings um, in the canteen. And I bought some. <laughs> Uh, we'll do that later, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, um, I'd take these catalogues home at night and I would start to read through them so that we're really talking about Impressionism, which is which I thought of as modern art, or what we might call Impressionism moving into modern art. Where, you know, in other words, uh, I remember yeah. thinking the same thing, Impressionists yeah. were modern as far as I was concerned. That's right, yeah, that's what I always thought. And I thought that the end of Impressionism was probably something like purism, for example. So you said, like, you know, Osmond or um, Le Corbusier or something. Or it, it, it basically moved into design, which at the time interested me much more. But um, because I had a lot of breaks and because I was doing this work at the publishing company, this, recording this music for just anyone who came in, quite a lot of famous people came in and sort of just sang me the song and said, it goes like this, have you got it? And you go, yeah, boom, so, so you're a kind of session drummer. A session drummer, yeah, just for demos though, yeah. not for anything demos. important yeah. really. But it, it, demos are important because this would be something like that singers would listen to who didn't write songs. Sure. You know? But you're moving into the area where everybody wrote songs because they had to. There was no money in the record business unless you wrote it, and yeah. that's the case now as well. And so, you know, I just got used to seeing, you know, what I always called from Monet to Manet. It, was, it wasn't moving very far. But I could quickly turn the page, and I, I did this for myself as a test, so that I could go, you know, Monet, Cezanne, Braque, blah, blah, without thinking. Now, I mean, weeks, uh, weeks uh, uh, earlier, months earlier, I'd never heard of Monet, Manet, Braque, Cezanne. I hadn't got a clue, you know. But I read the... Um, instructions, what I call the instructions, which is really a description of the works, for the sake of selling it. And that, to me, became the reference book, you know. I've still got all the catalogues, by the way, I kept everything. I've got hundreds. Like, they, <laughs> they gave me hundreds of catalogues. Of course, now it's gone totally online. Yeah, They're that's not right. not making hard copies anymore. Yeah, I've got all the copies, I've got everything. I'm yeah, not, um, I've still got by a lot. Yeah. Um, sometimes it went into... British art. I yeah. don't think they had a thing called Mod Brit yeah. at the time. I, I can't quite remember. And sometimes you had a little bit of design, but they weren't really doing design. I think it was only Phillips that were doing design 
and Bonhams maybe at the time, you know. But anyway, so I, uh, that was my introduction and that was the thing that connected me from um, my music, which is, what, which is the only thing I was concerned with, into this other thing that I became concerned with, which I didn't know I would be. Mm. And I was actually quite fast at recognising things. So then, when I, then a couple of years later, when I went to Goldsmiths, um, again, to study music formally, I realised that I needed to learn how to orchestrate and, and many other technical things about music if I wanted to make progress in the way that I wanted to and be more of an all-round musician. Um, as I say, if I walked across the corridor, I was in the art school and then that moved me into the contemporary world. Mm. I do remember going to the so-called um, Damien Hirst or whatever, um, the Tunnels show, and I think <laughs> I went there um, with Matt, um, Matthew Collings, um, the art critic, mm. uh, who did this great thing, if you've not seen it, in the 90s, um, or the two, two, two big series of programmes, This Is Modern Art. Really, um, that, was, that was the thing that sort of sealed me, that was around 1997, 98, mm. I think sealed me into contemporary, watching that, um, which was the history of how it became, where, how it got to where it got to, and contemporary art started, and then Tate Modern opened, and then we were all full on, and then a year later the gallery, Riflemaker opened. So it was 2004 Riflemaker opened. 2004 Riflemaker opened, yeah. We, I, well, interestingly enough, even though we, we we stayed in that same place, which is unusual for 15 years, most people stay for two or three years and somewhere and then they move, they might have a gap, they might have a rest, we needed a rest. Certainly we were absolutely whacked out, but we stayed it, we stuck with it and stayed with it. Um, but yeah, Riflemaker started to 2004, but interestingly enough, the two partners in it, we'd only met six months before, mm -hmm. which is really weird. You know, that's you and Virginia, and Virginia Danster, yeah. of course, is an alumna of Southern Institutes of Art. That's right. Contemporary art. Yes, that's right, she is, yeah. yeah. And um, we met at Freeze Art Fair. We were both looking at the same thing. That was, two, that was when it first opened in 2003. 2003. Yeah. And um, we were both looking at paintings by Marta Marseille. Somehow we looked at each other and she said, made some sort of weird comment about <laughs> the, uh, And we thought, thought and I remember thinking, oh, well, she's got a really weird accent. And then she asked me something. When we walked out, I was actually with Marta, um, who, I, who I knew, and we were going to go and get a cup of coffee or something. That was, that was as, as simple as that. And Virginia, and we, and we just, we both said to Virginia, do you want to come with us? We're going to go and have a cup of coffee. And she said, yeah. And... We then walked out of Freeze and we walked into um, central London, into the West End, and we walked past the Riflemaker building. And uh, I said to, because I said, what are you doing? What are you up to then? She said, oh, I'm going to start a gallery. And I said, oh, where? She said, oh, I don't know. I don't know where it is. I said, okay. So, well, look, you know, this is real simple. Um, I've been watching, I've been recording in Beak Street in a studio uh, opposite. There's a lot of sound studios there underground. Uh, recording studios, by the way, in those days were always underground because they needed us to pay for sound, soundproofing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for soundproofed anyway. And uh, I said to her, there's this great space, but it looks a bit weird. I don't know if it's going to be the kind of thing that you'd like. It, it looks like a dirty old place, but it's a gun shop. And she goes, oh, it sounds strange, you know. But we walked past it anyway. And uh, we looked at it. And um, 
then we all said bye-bye and, and that was it. Uh, the next afternoon I was recording and when we looked at the Rifle Maker building, it was all boarded up. You couldn't really see the beautiful um, 18th century shop. It was built in 1712. And even now, if you walked past it, if we walked out of this room and walked over there, we'd still see the beautiful 1712 facade, because grade one listed, we were never allowed to touch it. We never would have touched it anyway, because it was so beautiful. Um, and Virginia, I got a call from uh, come in and said, oh, there's somebody who I can't understand what she's saying on the phone. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, I don't know. They said, oh, her name's Virginia. And I said, oh, hang on a minute, that's a person from last night. And I said, hello, are you all right? Oh. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, do you remember, um, you remember me from last night? I said, yeah, yeah. She said, do you remember that place that we were looking at that you said, which is all boarded up, which we couldn't get in, you couldn't get in? I said, yeah. She said, I'm inside. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Do you want to come and have a look? I went, you're inside, but it was all boarded up. Yeah, I'm inside. Do you want to come and have a look? And immediately I thought, wow, that's a person who can get things done. <laughs> that was the beginning of our business relationship, really. <laughs> and then, I, as I remember it, you had a very special opening for the gallery, uh, which was a wonderful kind of, you know, art world coup, but also like a great marketing coup to start a gallery in the middle of London. And I, mm. maybe this might lead into your first chosen track on your new record, because I think yes. things are linked. So do you want to say a little bit about that first exhibition? Yes, of course. Well, we, I had been um, looking around at the student shows, as I usually would, and try and find things that I was interested in. And when I was walking, I was in the Royal College of Art show, just weeks before, literally weeks before, because Freeze opened in October, so this would have been like in July or something like this, I would have been at that show. And when I walked out of the show, it wasn't anything in that I was vaguely interested in at all, thought it was dreary in fact, but when I walked out, I tripped over a file that was on the floor. I almost tripped over, almost fell over, and I picked it up. And it was a file of drawings, uh, very, very fine drawings by somebody. And I thought, I don't want that. So I, 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 looked, I started to look at it, and I was sort of entranced by it, and I started to turn the page as a plastic folder, and drawing on drawing on drawing on drawing, all exquisite, um, beautifully uh, drawn physically, and made physically, but also were giving me something, you know, emanating something. And I thought, wow. <laughs> so I went to the lady who was almost next door to me on the on the door, you know, and said, excuse me, somebody's um, dropped this. And she said, no, 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 leave it, it leave it. I said, no, I said it was on the floor. <laughs> no, leave it, it's supposed to be. I said, oh. Number of times that's happened to me in a contemporary Yeah, yeah. You know, I said, right, okay. She said, yeah, leave it, put it back. I said, okay, all right. Um, I said, there's nothing in it kind of thing. No, she said, it's by Jamie Shovlin. It's an artist oh, called Jamie oh, Shovlin. Jamie. So I said, okay. So anyway, so I, I wrote all this down and I um, didn't do anything about it. But when we decided just a few months later that we were going to try this, I thought, what would be really good? We thought we're not going to, we, we mustn't open with something that everyone knows. That's boring. Mm -hmm. And it will, that will brand us, which we don't want because sure. we don't know who we are yet. 
ourselves. You know, we just know that we won't do anything that anybody else is doing. We're both sort of slightly odd, defiant people as well. So I called up Jamie Shovelin and said, hey, I was at your show a couple of months ago and rather, and we're going to open a gallery. And he was very kind of like, oh, so what, you know, <laughs> and all this. Uh, but anyway, that was the first show. And what happened there was that we exhibited on these four floors. I, sh I, I went through it with Virginia and she agreed. She said, well, they're just fa fabulous, you know, and this is great. You know, we will do what we want to do. Um, we're starting, we don't, we don't care about anyone, we will do what we want to do, we don't care about being in an art gallery or anything, we're just going to do this thing. So, okay, great, that's my attitude about everything, let's do it. And um, we had so many people between us to invite, because we were both in different worlds, I had all my music people, she had her art people, and lots of fashion people there as well, that we decided we had to have three nights. So we had these three nights, and then we opened um, on the Tuesday morning. Uh, no, I'm sorry, on the on the uh, yeah Tuesday morning or something. And at ten to ten, um, when we were we, we 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 decided we'd open from ten till seven, which is kind of weird art gallery hours. We didn't we were so ignorant we didn't even know what the art gallery hours were supposed to be. <laughs> anyway, so we just thought okay, you know. I noticed that we were watching the street as we cleaned the place and, and uh, painted it just a little bit inside, not much, but just cleared it up. Really. We were watching the, the movement of people outside and we, we stood outside. We stood opposite the gallery. We took it in turns to stand there for two hours and watch the movement between the street, the front of the, the window. We were very keen on this, how do we do it, logistics, and what's the most artistic or creative way for us to open a gallery. We're certainly not... We are not two people who are going to sit at that desk and wait for somebody to come in. We're not going to get bored like that. So we thought, OK, we'll be very active about the what's actually going on outside. So we did this. We, uh, we got lucky later on because Google moved to the street opposite and then YouTube moved over there. Um, so although it was a cranky little side street in a sense, it was also a very big kind of byway or bypass in, in a way as well, where you have these little blocks of activity. And then the great thing was that Tim Berners-Lee, um, the inventor of the internet itself, mm. moved opposite us. Wow. So, so um, not only did we have cranky fashion people and a few sort of local traders and things, but we also had these international super brains mm -hmm. um, passing the gallery every five, ten minutes, and that was a secret uh, of our success in a way, you know, that, that we just luck, basically. Suddenly in the right place. Yeah, the right positioning, time. yeah, from being in a, in a place that wasn't the East End. I mean, when people would say to me, what, you know, where is it? Where is it? You'd go, <laughs> oh, we're in Soho. They'd go, oh, Soho. Oh. <laughs> Why aren't you in the East End, man? And you go, because we don't want to be in the East End, man. It's cold over there. <laughs> I used to say to Virginia, and she goes, oh, no, 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 it's cold. Every time we go over there, those streets, it's really cold. I don't want to be there. We say, no, I don't either. You know, we've got nice food in Soho and all this, all this stuff, you know. Um, but anyway, we, had a, we were cleaning up, and we had a knock on the door. It was about 10 to 10, just before we opened. And um, I was in the corridor sweeping up and all that, and Virginia was sweeping up in the main. And she pulled the, the curtain down just a touch and she, I heard her go, I heard somebody anyway, go <gasps> like this. So I thought, oh God, what, what's happened? And I sort of put my head around, she goes, no, 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 no. She, oh, oh. And then I heard her sort of, you know, walk towards me in the next room and she said, uh, <clears throat> there's somebody outside. 
I said, okay. <laughs> she said, no, but but there's somebody outside. I said, okay. So she goes, no, but get Charles Saatchi. <laughs> I said, yeah. And she said, no, no, he's outside. Pull the other one. Yeah. I said, uh, okay, well, you better let him in, hadn't you? And uh, then all I heard was the door opened, and I heard, hello, Charles. And then he said something like, uh, my director um, came to your party last night and said this was the most unusual gallery that he'd ever been to, or some such comment. Can I have a look? And she said, yeah, you're actually the first person in. Anyway, within 15 minutes, Charles Saatchi had bought everything in the gallery Mm. on all four floors. Yeah. Yeah, so within half an hour of opening the business, we were sold out, which is weird. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. But for the first exhibition as well. The first exhibition, the second exhibition, we went to the British Museum, mm-hmm. and so we thought we'd like to collaborate. We were talking about this one day, just in the in there, you know, after after a couple of weeks, we hadn't got anything to sell, which was weird. Puts us in a weird position. We had to have the show on, and it, when we we told the artist that the show was going to be on for two months, which it was two weeks, months, ten weeks. And we thought, okay, what should we do? This has gone pretty well. I said, well, what's your favourite museum in London? She said, oh, British Museum. I love the British. I always go to the British. Well, that's quite surprising for a contemporary art person. Yeah, you know, British Museum. And I said, yeah, I do as well. I go in there all the time. It's quite close to where I live. And um, I said, okay, well, why don't we go and see them and see if we can do a show with them? She goes, no, don't be ridiculous. I said, no, it's perfectly possible. So, yeah, she said, I know somebody who's done a show there, actually, Christopher Bucklow. Uh, because he used to be a curator there. So our second show, we went to the British Museum, actually, and said this, which was, and ridiculously enough, they said, yeah, this sounds great. Yeah, we, why don't we come and take a look at what you've got? They came to see the Jamie Shelby show, absolutely loved it. Loved the fact that nothing made sense, and that it was in this gun shop, and these two wacky people. And they kind of said, okay, you know, come and see us, and... Uh, well, you know, you can borrow whatever you want. So they lent, lent, they loaned us some, I don't know what they were, they were William Blake somethings. They weren't obviously William Blake drawings, but they were um, some kind Maybe of prints. weird tints or aquatints mm. or something that had been done about 100 years ago. Yeah. And that complemented Christopher Bucklow's drawings, which were Blakeish, and he had been a curator at the British Museum as well. So the second one was with them. Anyway... It, but it carried but on the there. Blakes were then interspersed in Rifle Maker with the Jamie Shublins. It wasn't. No, no, it was a second show. Yeah. It became a show by but itself. But it wasn't your material. It wasn't his material in the British Museum. It was the British Museum material in your gallery. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. I think the first time that that, that contemporary art intervened to the British Museum is the Statue of Pillar exhibition a few years oh, later. Yeah. With Hurst and Gormley and, yeah. and yeah, Quinn that's right. and Co. Oh, yeah, were, I remember that. Were, yeah. Were there, yeah. yeah, this was Christopher Bucklow making his drawings, which were based on William Blake's ideas. Yeah. Yeah, what a and, great mix uh, and an early mix of kind of contemporary and. That's and right. We, um, we, we always did a lot of research, when, even when our shows were, were going on, and we, we, we would carry on doing the research. So I took it upon myself to go to the British Museum and look for the Blake archive. And I then went to speak to the Blake curator, um, and he told me that William Blake lived up the road, five uh, houses away mm-hmm. from the gallery from in Beak Street. Um, and then I, he said, if you walk up there, you'll see this place, and it says Blake House, which it is. It's been knocked down, but it still says it there. Mm-hmm. And he told me that he, that William Blake's niece 
worked in a some kind of dressmakers, which was almost next door to the gallery, which is very weird. And that Blake would have his daily walk down Beak Street, which would take him to a coffee house in Great Newport Street in Covent Garden, weirdly enough. And he said, that street's not there anymore, but you can follow the path. So I did it one day, and, and it was there. And I thought, okay, now I've done that, and I've got that information, so this can be part of our show. You know, we, William Blake walked past this window every day, and he said that next, next we know that next door, which was now a Chinese restaurant, by the way, it wasn't, you know, so this is why, the, this is why we were in a bit of an odd place, um, used to be a, a needle maker, a, a dressmaker. Yeah. So, um, getting on to my recording activity, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, so the, um, about two or three years later, and we were trying to, we, 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 we had an idea that we would do very, very new contemporary artists. Usually the idea was they had to be someone that no one had really known about or heard of. So sort of emerging artists, but maybe with a yeah. the odd show in a regional gallery? Yeah, that's, that's right. Very emerging, though, yeah. and they'd usually be young. Not um, prize winners yet. No, that's right. But one thing that we did think that we would could do was that um, I'd been reading something. Uh, I think it was Morning Becomes Electra or something something mm. weird. And I and suddenly came into my... And I'd been reading a book about the, the Indica Gallery, mm. um, which was uh, John Dunbar and Barry Miles's seminal, very, very important gallery, which is um, in... It was only open for two years, 66 to 68. Um, but it was behind where White Cube is now in Mason's Yard. You can mm -hmm. still see the room. Indica was important because it was the first, one of the first galleries to show kinetic work, particularly, and the work of that mid-60s period. It's also more famous than anything, probably, because it had a Yoko Ono show, and that was the exhibition when she was setting up that John Lennon came to see John Dunbar and John Dunbar, the, the, one of the two curators of the gallery, said to John Lennon, oh, why don't you stay and have a look at the art? And apparently he said, oh, no, I, I can't, I, I, I'm not in the mood. And John Dunbar said, no, 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 look, just do one thing, John, go walk up that ladder and take a look at the, what it is on the ceiling. And John Lennon uh, you know, looked at him and said, you can't, don't be silly. He said, go, do it, do it, do it, man, do it. You know? And John Lennon walked up there and, saw, and there was a little note on there. Um, and... John Lennon loved that idea, and that's when uh, John Dunbar it said, and this is the artist, and the artist was Yoko Ono, and that was when they met, that was the day they met, so he's famous for that reason yeah. as well. And so we thought, okay, why don't we take the Indica artists, um, all, all of them, as many as we can find, and do a show which is called Rifle Maker Becomes Indica, like morning becomes Electra. Liked this idea. And then we thought, has that been done before? Has any gallery been another gallery? Okay. Well, not that we know of. We sort of looked around and thought, and we thought, yeah, that is, a, that is a good name. It's a hook. It's a great idea. The other thing great is that the two original curators are still there. They can come and help us. So that became, that was two years later, but that became a show that sort of solidified us on the art map a bit more. And the original show was some 50 years earlier, which is incredible. 50 years it? earlier, yeah. And yeah, 50 um, years earlier. Um, Yoko Ono herself um, came to check us out 
unannounced one day. <laughs> she took us by surprise, just walked in and kind of went, so... Is that more surprising than Charles Sarchi knocking on the door? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. Um, she was just great. <laughs> um, we got on so well. We all got on so well, actually. It was a very happy experience. But she particularly was great because, obviously, lots of people are uh, asking her for things and whatever, which we didn't. We, we made sure we didn't do that. And we were just talking really about her art. And she came to help us. She did a bagism um, event for us, which was a big thing, with, with John Dunbar, which he had done with John Lennon before, where they both get in the, the black bags. We did that at the gallery. Um, she came out dancing with us. <laughs> we took her to a couple of clubs. Very early kind of performance artist. And, and Very early un performance Underrated artist. at the time. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing about... Um, Yoko Ono, I think, is that lots of things that she was talking about 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, are now today. Yeah. And that's all you can say, that's all you really need to say. Lots of her ideas about this and that, various things, certainly very, very feminist ideas. Why can't I do this? Why can't I be the artist? Why can't I be prominent? Why can't I be dominant? Um, which weren't looked upon as, you know, being the, the way to go, um, now obviously are. I mean, it's um, almost, it's 15 years ago, it's 13 years ago since we did that show. That's quite a long time. And it wasn't, it really wasn't converted then. Now I feel it is. And so when I started, uh, because this is an opportunity, the gallery not being there and us being in lockdown kind of thing, it was an opportunity for me to actually, okay, uh, damn it, I'll go into a recording studio and make a record. Why not? You know, um, I wasn't going to do it, but I am going to do it now. And so John Lennon had a song on the Imagine album, which everybody will know, Oh, oh Yoko. Uh, mm -hmm. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, I call your name. Oh, Yoko, oh, Yoko. Um, your love will turn me up, that, that. And I thought, okay, why don't I kind of do a little bit of a reversal, particularly of the title, instead of Oh Yoko, why, what about if it was Yoko, oh. You know, what she's actually doing, what she did, what she achieved, and who she is, is a bit different to what we thought. And so she's come good, she's reversed her, um, you know, she's reversed what we feel about her, and, and she's very much uh, reversed that and become, I think, the prominent figure of all this thinking today, including the woke thing and everything that is now about, in a sense, being yourself yeah. and uh, very much being yourself and not worrying about that. I think that's very Yoko Ono. <laughs> and I, I remember you sent me... You sent me copy of the vinyl single, the 45, mm. to play. And um, I remember immediately thinking, you know, this was this is on the album. Um, yeah. So you were releasing the, the, the some of the singles in, in advance. And this yes. was a couple of years ago, I think. Two and years ago, yeah. It was brilliant. And I remember playing it. And because uh, I know the Imagined Record, and mm. all people of our generation know it very well. I think a lot yeah. of uh, my, my, my younger students will know that album very well as well. Mm. Um, but I remember thinking that, you know, Lennon's track was Oh Yoko, almost like a hymn of praise. Yeah, kind of oh yeah. Whereas Yoko O is, look at what you did, look at what you've done. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, which, she's a very underrated artist in my opinion. And uh, um, so, so tell us how this track we're about to listen to came into being then. Well, it comes into being because um, 
I was listening to the uh, Imagine album myself, and musically, it's very difficult because I don't know how how, how um, uh, people will relate to actual musical things. But you know, music-wise, as as people will know, you got a change between major and minor all the time. Some things are either major and some things are either minor. Um, in a lot of uh, John Lennon songs, and in a lot of songs of the period as well, you go from a standard minor chord to a, a, what we call a, a major dominant seven chord. Uh, for, which, which has an emotional effect. On it has listener. a big yeah. emotional effect. It's, it's a kind of a drop. Mm. So you start off with your minor and your brain. Your minor, by the way, is da-da-da-da. Da, 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 da. Your major, by the way, is da, 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 easily. The second one's happy, the first one's a bit sad. Not general, not, not specifically sad or happy, but you know what I mean. Um, and so if you start off with your minor chord, and then the second chord becomes one of those majors, but you add in a dominant seventh, which is a questioning note, mm -hmm. then you kind of get an, oh, and you'll hear it in all sorts of music. You'll hear it in a lot of songs that you, you're, you know, that everybody listening to this will love, but you weren't aware of it. You know, you will hear music. You know, music and chords, particularly. In other words, harmony. What we call harmony, but essentially they're chords. Chords give you information that your brain translates as happy, sad, in the basic way, um, worried, terrified, jubilant, overjoyed, but also questioning. It's a bit but like colours in, like in a colors. painting as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. when you're reading colours in a painting, mm. yeah, when, when you've got them. And I mean, the, the listeners will know the track Imagine very well, and you can hear that going on in that track. Um, and of course, Yoko, I believe, actually wrote the lyrics for that, which a lot of people, I think, added a tribute to Lenin himself, but as I understand it, I think you told me. <laughs> I, I think this is. I, I believe this is true. I mean, this is this is uh, slightly weird. So we should put a disclaimer in here. This is <laughs> this is slightly odd territory. Okay, you have to watch. You have to watch the <laughs> I didn't know you were uh, intellectual hit that. property right owners of John Lennon's lyrics. <laughs> <No. laughs> I didn't know David was going to go that deep. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I think what what the what is I believe what the facts are is that Yoko certainly wrote the first uh, Imagine There's No Heaven, blah, blah, yeah. the first verse and all that. Um, but I guess that when you're in these kind of these kind of entwined relationships, you know, you both do something yeah, exactly. or somebody says something. Yeah. We all know this ourselves, and you sort of respond to it. Yeah. It's not like rubbing off. You know, some you're with somebody and stuff rubs off. Well, like you and Virginia yeah. Dampster in the, yeah. in the founding of Riflemaker. It's yeah. a two-way thing, isn't it? It um, is a two-way yeah, thing. Symbiotic. Yeah. <laughs> it is absolutely. Yeah, we were two very two people that were so opposite. It was a good mm. thing about the gallery. It was a key to the gallery that we didn't really agree about anything, which was good. It was really actually good because you had to justify what you wanted sure. to do, you know. Yeah. And the other one would be, she would be the, well, what about so-and-so? I go, yeah, you're right, okay, well, I'll adjust that a bit. You know? mm -hmm. And so much so that you might have adjusted, you might have been standing in the opposite corner, but the show would be better. We did yeah. that to each other. We sort of pulled apart each other's exhibitions, um, tried to think of other, other ideas. But yeah, so in so in, in this song, what I'd done was a sort of reversal of mm. the idea um, of, of John's song. Shall yeah, I, let's, let's shall have a listen. I, shall we try to? We've got a very, very super duper. This is like a modern dance set. This is high tech. This is high tech, people. 
This is what they call an intro. We're not going to play all of it. This is what they call a crossfade in recording studios. Here we go. interesting is hearing the whole album and tracks I didn't know yeah. um, and, and now beginning to sort of you know judge what my favorites are and the, the, the different changes of mood through the album just to explain to everyone by the way we deliberately brought in a kind of very old-fashioned record player uh, and it's a vinyl disc we're playing but because we're in 2022 this is this record is available on different media so you can listen to it on Spotify uh, you can listen to it as a CD and you can listen to it on vinyl. I would, all, I would tell you all, the vinyl is the real thing because one of the things I think Tot's doing on this record is creating this amazingly... There's, there's definitely a sense of nostalgia running through all the tracks, uh, and, and that, that comes through a bit like an artist using different media by the medium that it's designed for, which is like vinyl analogue recording. Uh, but you can hear really, really nice... Um, actually, it's a stereo record, it's just that I haven't got a stereo record player with me. It's a little transportable record player. And I remember the first records I ever heard were when my sisters were going out every Saturday afternoon in a little record shop down the road called The Parade. And they'd come back with these singles by this band called The Beatles. I was six years old, and I remember dancing to the stereogram when they were playing these to things like She Loves You. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that... So the whole feel of what Tot has produced here, the old original vinyl... And, um, uh, and and the sound quality just is very nostalgic in itself. Yeah, it's on uh, the, the, the vinyl, by the way, the, the sonic um, element of it, in other words, how hi-fi it is and high fidelity, how, how good it sounds, and the breadth of the sound, the highness, the brightness, and the deep bass of it is to do with the thickness of the record, if people don't know that. So that's 180-gram vinyl. Mm -hmm. which is what you call it, and it's distributed by Rough Trade, um, which is important as well, because yep. Rough Trade is, 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 is almost, well, I mean, it's, I always sort of think of Rough Trade and William Morris as <laughs> the same thing, you know, it's an art company made by an idealist, Absolutely. the idealist on the Rough Trade side was Jeff Travis, 
who again, when I was a young kid in Cambridge, and I used to go into a shop there when I escaped school, I'd be about 13, 14, no, maybe 12, 13, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with school. I'd stay on the bus and hide under the seat <laughs> when the bus went past the school, when they counted the heads. And I'd go to a shop in, in Cambridge called Red House, which was all full of hippies, you know, like, like the Hendrix song. Um, literally all full of hippies, but it was only about the size of this table that me wow. and David are sitting at. <laughs> and one of the people who was in the booths in those days, they had these booths, and he had. I, I remember seeing this guy who used to have to wedge his hair in the booth. He couldn't quite get his head in the booth to listen to the record <laughs> that he was supposed to do, because he had too much wiry hair. And that was Jeff Travis. Wow, yeah, amazing. But I, yeah, but I didn't know that at the time, obviously. And, and for listeners, if you haven't been there, there's a big rough trade um, just by Brick Lane. So when, when, when I take my students around the street art from Brick Lane and the galleries down there, we always go around and, and, and look into rough trade. And yeah. I, remember, I remember taking them a few months ago and saying, oh, look, I know this guy, it's Top Taylor, and all his <laughs> records are in there. And I think, Top, you, you were in their kind of top 10 or top 100 albums of the year. Well, I, well, this has just happened. I had a, a, a record collector magazine, which is one of these things for people who collect vinyl records, had one of my singles as single of the year, which is pr pretty phenomenal, a couple of months ago, which surprised me. But even more surprising was that last week, Rough Trade published their 100 records of the year, mm -hmm. albums of the year, sorry, from 21,000 records. Um, and I, my, my album, this one, is in it which is phenomenal. There's no favouritism, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it's just like somebody, they're all chosen from outside people and everything else. Brilliant. But we're in there, which is wonderful. It's, it's nice when things, something like that happens. Brilliant. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you if we could listen next to the opening track of the records, yeah. because it's a different tempo. Yeah. And then maybe after that we could come back to my big favourite, mm -hmm. which is uh, which I use on the intro and outro of the pod, which is Baby I Love the inter Internet, but it's yep. a, just a change of mood, that first track, National Music Day, and I remember when I heard this, I thought, this is a bit strange, and this is an example of, like, you look at a work of art, and you think, this is a bit strange, and then you read a bit about it, and you understand it suddenly, mm. and the moment I understood the story behind this, I got where it was coming from, but what I would say is the whole album is, it's just so memorable after a few plays, you know, it's definitely got in the best possible sense, a commercial aspect to it, this album. So, you know, you, st you find yourself humming the, humming the tunes and you get favourites. And the good thing about a vinyl record is you can go straight... I suppose you can do it with Spotify. You can go straight to the tracks you like. Yeah. Um, but you have to do it physically by bringing the needle down on the vinyl. If any of you never done that, it's something that we all, we we all used to do when we yeah. were young. Um, and, and it's worth getting into that game. But say yeah. something about the, the first okay. track. Well, I'm about to try to bring the needle down, by the way. It might not, it might not hit the record. Um, thank you, David, for saying that. So nice of you. Um, uh, the idea of the, the whole album is that every song has got a story attached to it. Mm -hmm. And the one that uh, you're using a little bit of um, a song called uh, Baby, I Miss the Internet, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. It's about Donald Trump, uh, one of his particular threats, one of these like crazy things that he says, and this, this is a crazy threat to bring down the internet. Um, National Music Day, if somebody said to me, um, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to write a song called National Music Day, my first thought would be, how naff? I'd think, oh my God, I, I don't want to listen to that song called, <laughs> this song that you're going to write called National Music Day. But um, somebody called me uh, one day, um, 
and I was, I was in the studio at the time, and they said, hey, we are, it was either, I, I can never remember where it came from, it either came from one of the music magazines or, or the Musicians' Union, I just can't remember, but they said, we're a body, which was weird, we're a body called National Music Day, and I kind of thought, hmm, okay. Sounds a bit like Soviet Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't think it sounded that great. <laughs> so, so I kind of went, oh, okay. Yeah, and, um, it, you know, am I speaking to Todd Taylor? Yes, okay, well, we've seen the thing that you've done on whatever it was. And I said, okay, yeah, thanks, and, and you know, it sounded great. And we wondered if you'd be interested to write the song for our National Music Day. And I thought, oh, dear, this doesn't sound like something that I should, you know, I could be interested in. So I sort of said, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, well, tell me about it, you know. And uh, they told me what it was going to be about, and it was going to be a nationwide thing, and it was going to be this, and you know, we need a national music day. And I kind of thought, we don't need a national music day. We've got loads of music going on in the UK. We've probably got too much music, in fact, because there's a lot of rubbish. <laughs> what we do need is some sort of, um, I don't know, formatting of kind of how to get the, the quality a little bit better and get rid of, of, of a lot of pap. But then you've got that in the art world, you've got it in the fashion world, you've got it in all creative industries, you know. So I thought, okay, and then I thought, when I, when I kind of got home, I'd been in the studio, and I got home and sat down at the piano, and I thought, okay, let me think about that, actually. What would National Music Day mean to me? And the first thing I thought was, I, I was listening to a DJ, I was listening to the radio on the way back in the cab, and the guy just kept talking over the record and drove me nuts. And I thought, shut up, you know, stop talking, let's hear the music. Uh, they talk all the time, and I thought, uh, well, what would be good is if the DJs stopped talking. That would be really good. And then I was thinking of talking, 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 and I thought walking, walking, walking. And at the time, this was like in the mid, mid to late 90s, uh, the vinyl thing had sort of finished. CDs were coming, they were dominant, um, but there weren't many records selling. We were in a low period of selling uh, physical records, as you probably remember. Mm -hmm. And I, then it just, I just had this little couplet, you know, when the DJ stopped talking and the records start walking. <laughs> and I thought, that's not bad, you know, that's not bad. And then I thought, if I put, if I add in this ah thing, like a, be like a folk song, when the, when the, rec when the DJ stop a talking and the records start, National Music Day, and I thought, I like that, because it's a kind of a folk song. So I thought, I'll write it as a folk song, you know, Froggy went on walking and he did ride, you know, all that stuff. Um, and so that, that's how I ended up. So when I come, got, came to do that, I, I recorded the thing, and I sent it to them, and they, they said, oh, um, the, the problem with it is, you know, we, we really liked it, but it's a bit negative, you know. You kind of, <laughs> like, you know, when the DJ stopped talking, like, how are we going to get people to play us? Don't worry about that. You know, we have to be bold. I mean, the thing is, you, you told me it was about National Music Day. You didn't tell it was National DJ Day. You know, um, I think it's fine. And they said, okay, okay, well, look, you know, leave it with us. We're going we're gonna to get it sorted out. Really like it. The other thing we didn't really understand, what's this when the DJ stop, stop at talking? What's that at? And I said, no, no, no. The times like, they are are changing. Yeah, that's right. The times, yeah, you ever heard of it? You know, the, the times they are are changing. You know, Froggy went a walking. And he kind of went, no, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. I said, right, your National Music Day, yeah? 
And he said, yeah. I said, right, okay, well, it, it's like folk songs. What, what do you mean? Anyway, so we had this uh, conversation, you know. And, uh, <laughs> You're too complicated. <laughs> dear, oh dear. So uh, anyway, so then um, he said, you know, if you could sort of correct it, if you could take those, make those adjustments and send it in again, we'd be delighted because we love the song. It's very, very catchy. It's very, very hooky. So, mm -hmm. Okay. So anyway, I, I didn't make the adjustments. I just left it. And then I think I had to call them because they had to pay a studio bill for me or something like that. And this was about three or four months later, but this is very typical of the music industry. Yeah. And I um, phoned and said, uh, you know, it, it's Todd Taylor, blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, oh, he said, ah, ah, Todd, you're Todd, yeah. I said, yeah, ah. <laughs> I said, yeah, you know, um, because I wonder if you could pay that studio bill that you said you were, ah, ah, I said, ah. Uh, right, I, I, I've got something to tell you, actually. And I said, yeah. And he said, National Music Day's been cancelled. <laughs> and uh, National Music Day's been cancelled. Uh, he said, yeah, I said that would have been great for the song. And I thought, isn't this wonderful? Mm. You know, you set up this big thing, mm. and then obviously you, you're going to cancel. That happens a lot in the yeah, art yeah. world, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, you're going to cancel the day. But then 20 years later, during lockdown, you put it on. Final. Yeah, I thought I would do. Shall I play a yeah, little bit of the start of it? And you'll see what people... It's a good opening track, actually, because it's so... Get your, your foot tapping. I hope I get this <laughs> and it's on the record. I'm just... Uh, yeah, it's on if I can. I get it on. Okay. Yeah. We should be all right. So it's just putting the needle down on the... Here it stylus, comes. sorry. Here it comes, <laughs> folks. <laughs> you can hear all the crackle. There we are. Look, it's real. We're actually live. Kind of starts off like one of those jingles. Yep. You know, where they put everything through a phase. Radio 1. That's right, yeah. Traffic <laughs> news. Yeah. <laughs> and the first two lines kind of sum the whole thing up, really. Here it comes. Last one we have time for today, yeah. but it's giving listeners a, a taste of um, you know Todd's background in the art world. Uh, we might finish actually by talking a little bit more about artists and music. Mm. Um, but but this is my favourite track, baby. I love the inter internet. Yeah. Internet. So do you want to just say a little bit? More? As as Todd says, it's it's. I didn't realise when I heard it actually that it was actually about uh, Donald Trump. But um, yeah, people um, tell me the story about that. Yes, I'm sorry, I was just looking for where it is on the other side. It's okay, that, 
Um, so I was... Um, Another problem with LPs and yeah. vinyls is that mm. they have two sides, so he's just turned the record over, which you don't do, on right. Spotify yeah. and on um, CDs. The other thing you can do, ladies and gentlemen, is that you can actually see on a vinyl record because depending on how loud the song is when it's actually been transferred to vinyl, the grooves seem to go in a zigzaggy way differently. Mm, so you can, you can actually see, and it's dynamics. So yeah. if you've got a quiet bit, the, 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 the thing that cuts into the record doesn't cut so hard so, yeah. or deep, so you can actually see it. So I was watching, uh, before Trump became elected, and it was, about, it was two years before he was elected, I was recording in the middle of the night, uh, which I often used to, be um, and I was doing something special for somebody, uh, and it was about I don't know three o'clock in the morning, and the um, he was being interviewed, and the the lady interviewer said to him, "What would you do? Um, what are you going to do about all this awful stuff that's being said about you on the internet? You know, this was a big thing at the time. How much could you allow to be said, which was going to affect elections and things like this, because it could be propaganda coming from the other side. It could be fake. And this was the beginning of kind of fake news and fake propaganda. I mean, propaganda is fake news anyway. So you get like double fakes and all this kind of thing. And th this really interested me. And he said, with regard to what? And, and he, she said, well, all this stuff like... And she read a couple of comments that were on, online about him. Really, really bad, bad, bad comments. And Trump, just um, without even thinking or particularly listening to her, like halfway through her sentence, just went, take it down! <laughs> she says, uh, I beg your pardon, Mr. Mr. Trump? Take it down! Take it down! She said, you'll take the comments down. No! The internet! <laughs> And I thought, wow, that's very interesting. So here we've got somebody who could become, you know, the leader of the free world, who's actually going to take down the whole of modern communications. And in the way that he's just come back and retaliated um, in that manner, he will do it. And then suddenly, the first thing that came into my mind was I was thinking, wow, I was thinking if that happens. And I was thinking, baby, I miss the internet. I thought it would be such a sort of silly Thing that somebody listening to Donald Trump might say to their partner, you know, what do you think about that, what he's saying? He said, oh, I don't know, baby, I, I, you know, we don't have the internet anymore. Baby, I miss the internet. And I thought, wow, this is, this is interesting. It's got a kind of musicalized sound. And then I thought, hmm, what would it be? And I thought, well, number one, it'd be a ballad. And then I thought, who would sing it? Because at the time, I wasn't thinking about singing it at all, not in a million years. I thought probably somebody like Barry Manilow would be good, you know, or the Carpenters, or one of these sort of uh, very sort of slow, languid mm. singers. And I imagined Barry Manilow in my mind, and I thought, okay, what I better do, because this is going to end up being political, I better look up Barry Manilow and find some stuff out. So I looked up Barry Manilow online right then, and it said the first thing about him in where I looked was Barry Manilow was one of the biggest funders of the Democratic Party in the US. Mm. And I thought, wow, I didn't know that. So I thought, that fits. That's good. So if I could imagine Barry singing it, <laughs> what would it be like? And so I went to the piano and, and figured out the sort of chords he uses, which are these what we call crushed chords with ninths, ninth notes in them, which makes it sound very ballady. And I put those notes together. And then I thought, how am I going to get 
what you know the words there mustn't be a protest song it'd be too too boring too obvious need something else and then i thought okay well the big thing about donald trump is his name and then i thought i can't have the word trump at the end of a line because i can't find a rhyme i know that <laughs> bump yeah bump. so i thought why don't I write about that? So then I had this, uh, the, the sort of couplet or whatever, come, you know, um, been hearing about it. Because what was interesting that we had been hearing about him for a long time, mm. 20 or 30 years before he became president, been hearing about you for a long, long time. Mm. Whenever I hear your name, I don't hear no rhyme. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I was kind of pleasing myself on both counts that it worked. Yeah, and other words, using rhyme in the sense that, you know, he's an aggressive person, you know, he's not a person who, he's not a peacemaker. Mm -hmm. He sort of, he does his work, he does his job in the other way, which is, a, which is sometimes a good way. Sometimes you can get things done by barging through. Just yeah, but I thought that's a good opening couplet. And so mm -hmm. the whole song is a, a bit like that. Shall I play a little bit? Yeah, and it's We're, track two. It's track two, that's And it's right. for listeners with vinyl records. And I don't know whether we can, because this is kind of beautiful, transparent vinyl. But when it's black, you can clearly see the tracks because yeah. there's a kind of wider groove between the different tracks. That's, how, that's the way one would find ones. Here we go. That's right. Now... You're going to have to bear with me a That's bit right. because I can't see where I'm going, but I am on the right track, as they <laughs> say. Okay, here we are. So everyone, this is well. How dare you scratch my right? Uh, sorry about that. I have to give you another one. Here we are, just physically having to move the. That's a song called "American Baby," which is. Here we go. A long song, isn't it? It is. Wow. That's about an inch of the record, by the way. Here we go. Right. Baby, I love the internet. <laughs> Baby, I miss the internet. I miss the internet. In other words, after Trump's yeah. taken it down. <laughs> and you'll recognise this as my intro to the podcast.
what we call block. Exactly. <laughs> the, all the tricks of the trades. Yeah. But beautiful, beautiful song. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I love the line. I can't quite remember what it is that where you say you should you should be making our lives better. Yeah. You know. You should, yeah, that's right. I mean, we, you know, you should be making our dreams come, come true. true. Trying to make yeah, our dreams exactly. come true, but yeah. the things you do. Well, that's true for a lot of politicians, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Well, they say they're going to make your dreams yeah. come true, and then they, they never start. do. They never yeah, do. I mean, we, you know, the absolutely parlous state that we're in <laughs> in our own country. <laughs> Top. Just to kind of finish off the this session, and I, I think we'll probably get you back at some point in the future because there's an awful lot of other things to talk about. Uh, not least your incredible novel, the, the, the story of John Knightley, which is almost like the written version of what Tot's been talking about, life in, you know, swinging 60s, early 70s, the recording industry in Soho, uh, where, where Tot then later had his art gallery. Um, we, we must talk about that book at some point. I think it's about to be published in the United States. By in Rand uh, May. In May, by yep. Rand Random House. Yeah. Yeah, great, yeah. fantastic. So look out for that. Um, uh, yeah, I... I remember you saying the other day about, you know, just to finish off, uh, maybe for the sake of, um, of, the, of the younger students who are interested in street art, mm. something about Banksy being from the music industry. Do you mm. want to just say a little about that before we finish? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, I think the very earliest um, Banksy works that you saw were these kind of what we would probably refer to as transfer-type images. Um, and Banksy was one of a group of artists um, from Bristol and around there. Bristol's in the West Country, or almost towards the West Country, people, people who don't know. And it has a particular, um, um, I don't know, idea about it of, of, of music. Um, they, it's a place where a lot of black music comes from, um, a lot of reggae and dance music particularly, uh, particularly in the 90s and the late 80s, which is where, which is where Banksy kind of started off. And um, the, so I think that this is an interesting, the, the whole Banksy phenomenon, particularly when it gets to Sotheby's and the works being um, destroyed live in the auction room, <laughs> of course, which is... Love is in the bin. <laughs> yeah, love is in the bin, yeah, which is frankly, a very old pop music trick. Mm. Um, a lot of the things that, in my mind anyway, a lot of the things that are happening and have happened with Banksy have happened 20 years before in pop music. Mm -hmm. so this, to me, is the first time really that pop music has had a, a big effect and a crossover into the world of contemporary art, and it's good that that's happening in Britain because I always felt that Britain did actually um, lead the way uh, with contemporary because I always felt that the American sort of version of contemporary art was really pop art which had been sort of heightened, converted, made more frightening, made more uh, deep, more um, disturbing which ha hadn't really happened in, in um, Britain. I think that there was a clean break between the British pop art and uh, contemporary art in Britain, uh, in terms of you know Tracy M and Damien Hirst et al kind of thing, um, but it is the first time I think that something's come. Ideas have come from pop music, and I, I, when I say pop music, I mean all sorts of modern contemporary music. I don't mean happy-go-lucky pop music. I don't mean ABBA or etc. I mean everything. 
um, I think it's the first time that you've had ideas coming from that area, which has always been based on shock, what we used to call shock horror probe, you know, um, the shock horror probe effect. I mean, when I was promoting records uh, in the 80s and 90s, the late 80s into the 90s, that was what I used too. We always tried to think of something where they wouldn't be able to ignore our idea, even if they didn't like the record. And this is really what has happened in contemporary art. The ideas, obviously, concept, conceptual is ideas, so you know, the ideas have become more important than the visual image, but we know that that's been a, uh, a facet or a factor of what, what goes on now, what we accept as being contemporary art or art or the visual arts as they are now or as they have been because I honestly think we might be at the end of that and I have no idea what's coming next but I've got a feeling it's going to be exciting mm. and it's what it might be what I might refer to as watery in my mind when people, people say well, what's coming next though have we done it <laughs> kind of go, yeah because this has been going on since the 90s, the 90s this has been going on for a long time what's next I, I, I don't know watery is next that's what I keep telling everybody and they go wow what is that? <laughs> I kind of go, well, you know, I can't say because you'll start doing it. So, <laughs> you know, um, but one of those anyway. But I don't know. It, it, as I say, it's, it's the first time it's happened. And so it makes me laugh a little bit because the art world is, is either feigning being sort of amazed or surprised about this kind of PR aspect. It's the kind of thing that Charles Saatchi specialised in for years in, the, in his advertising life and his art world life as well. Um, shock, as I say, shock horror probe. You know, it works. It's good. You've got to be good to do it, though. And uh, again, I, I, you know, I always think back to the great early years of what Charles Archie did. I mean, he rejuvenated this whole scene. You know, so we, we really must keep re remembering to be respectful to Mr. Sarchi because I think that he's the sole key person, um, along with Damien Hurst. You know, why we are around and doing things actually and I think we need to be very you know very respectful to him mm. uh, for creating all this stuff in I, the first place so that we could mess around and, yeah. and mess it up yeah uh, mess it up and mess it up for him as well because now things have kind of moved on a little bit but this is the first time that I remember anyway that, that you had the thing coming from pop into art before it sort of went from art into pop yep um, and now it now it's reversed. It's going to be yeah. interesting to see what happens next. I really haven't got a clue. Yeah. Um, I don't know what what you think, you know. But my, my my only thought about it is whatever it is, it will be watery. Thank you very much. <laughs> does that does watery is that negative or it could be ambiguous? It could be both negative and positive. I, I think what I, I what I think will happen next in contemporary art will be bland. I am is my view. Yeah. So yeah. after a renaissance comes mannerism. I, yeah, I think it will be bland. I think it will be like a sort of I don't know. You could say like color field or something. It'll be yeah. one of those kind of things that will could be more decorative than deep. Um, mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong in any kind of art, in in my view. There's everything I could like. I can like bad art because I can think about it and yeah. makes me think. And it makes me think why I don't like it, you know, I kind of think, if I don't like something, I don't just discount yeah. it, I think, I don't like that. You, on, on, your, on the notes to the album uh, I was reading, 
um, you say that you want people to put away any kind of intellect and theoretical ideas or judgmental ideas. Funny enough, that's what I always say when I'm interviewing my students. I'm going to show you a work of art, mm. and I want to forget your. I want you to forget your art history and just tell me what hits you. That's right. And very often, I've had students almost in tears because they haven't been allowed to do that by their art history yeah. teachers for several years. And of course, in the art world, you've got to get back to behaving like a child when you look at stuff. And I think those words of advice on listening to the music on your record are really important. You just drop all judgment and just enjoy. And ultimately, I think the best art comes, it doesn't mean it's not deep and serious and the ambiguity that comes through the record is, is all there. Um, but, but, you know, you've got the surface, which is very attractive and listenable to, and then you can go, you can drill down, I think, into all of, all of this. So yeah. um, I, I imagine that I'm going to release this um, probably just before, just before Christmas. So I kind of imagine some listeners, I'm hoping that you'll be there doing the washing up after the Christmas dinner <laughs> and maybe listen to this podcast and, and, and enjoy. And, um, you know, if you like, uh, go into Spotify or whatever, or preferably go to Rough Trade and buy the record or the CD and um, give it a good listen. I think you'll... So thank thank you you once again, Todd, for this really interesting uh, talk. You're very welcome, David. Happy Christmas to you, honestly. Yeah, and a happy new year. Bye bye.